everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration, your DC Spotlight for the week of November 13th, I guess, 2023, even though it's coming out a couple days late. Sorry about that. Uh, work has been a little insane, getting ready for the holidays. Uh, so a few books to talk about this week. I thought overall it was it was an okay week. Nothing blew me away. Um, there's some books that, man, I, I really didn't enjoy it. I guess I'm not the target audience for them, but... Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that, I guess. Uh, try to keep the rants to a minimum. But anyway, what did you think of the week overall, Rocky? Uh, there was uh, there was uh, probably about four or five that I that I that I enjoyed, and uh, one that I was disappointed in, but I have higher hopes for, and one and I, I and I think you and I will share an opinion. Uh, and we don't always share an opinion, but I think we're going to share an opinion as to how bad one particular comic is, or at least one that is not catering to our sensibilities but <laughs> so it'll be interesting to to uh to hear uh hear your views on all the comics but the one in particular <coughs> speed force uh we'll we'll get into so uh. yeah i can <laughs> i don't know I, i've been th spending the last few days thinking about it like trying to i don't know maybe i just missed it i i just didn't understand what it, what it was about but yeah uh, anyway let's kick it off with the outsiders number one Never the End, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly are on the script. Robert Carey does the art. Valentina Teddio on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. You know, when it comes to the name Outsiders, you know, so kicking off, I think it was all the way back in 83, I want to say. Uh, maybe even earlier than that, that we had Batman and the Outsiders. You know, the real famous scene with Batman quitting the Justice League, putting together this team, calling it the Outsiders. And then I, I want to say that ran for, I don't know, 36 issues. Or I, I think it ran for like 24 issues, and then Batman left. Um, and then they eventually relaunched it as uh, one of those Baxter series with the prestige paper, charging a buck 25 for it with the better colors and the nicer paper. Um, I mean, think about that, $1.25 for a comic. And back then it was like, oh my god, a dollar twenty-five for a comic it's better be good. Um, and now we're paying five bucks a book; it's ridiculous. But anyway, get off my lawn, I guess. Uh, but anyway, I say all that to say, you know, the Outsiders, in its various iterations over the years, have have shown up and typically linked with Batman or Batman type characters, and it's worked to varying degrees. Now, most recently, under the pen of um, Brian Edward Hill doing the writing, it was a really interesting concept that I feel like we, I didn't get enough of where it was this team of like four Batman related characters and the other slot in the outsiders would rotate based on somebody would come to Jefferson Pierce, basically black lightning maybe is the one character that's been uh, an outsider the most along with Katana probably. Um, and they were both founding members of Batman and the outsiders, but yeah, this idea that Brian Edward Hill had where a particular hero would come to Black Lightning and say, hey, I have this problem. I really need some help. And he'd say, oh, you know, you'll be the, the fifth member, quote unquote, of the uh, Outsiders and we'll go and tackle whatever problem. We saw maybe two stories with that concept. And it, it's too bad it never went to series because that that's something I would have wanted to read on a regular basis because it would give have given Brian Edward Hill DC um, – a chance to give us some of the heroes that don't show up a lot, you know, some of the lower BC level heroes 
that don't have a, a book on a regular basis. Um, some other, you know, uh, classic members of the Outsiders have not fared so well, <laughs> Geoforce. Uh, but that, that, that has been the concept most recently. Now, that that's all thrown out. Like, forget about all of that, right? Now it's this idea that the Outsiders are this clandestine, mysterious group founded by uh, Luke Fox, funded by Lucius Fox, and they are going after things that um, nobody else knows about, trying to discover mysteries, what have you. And toward the end of this story, uh, and I guess I should mention, there's a new character we're introduced here named Drummer, who's, who's pretty interesting, um, supposedly can talk to history, whatever the heck that means. Uh, but we do see them later in the story get, have some powers and walks around. She walks around with drumsticks, spinning them around. It's an interesting visual. Uh, but then later, when they're in this mysterious underground base, she's you know using her drumsticks and she taps one or um, uses one to hit a, a gun and uh, the gun explodes. So that's pretty interesting. But then later, she's sitting on the floor of this complex and she's kind of just tapping out a little rhythm on some of the equipment there. And she's kind of seen back into the history of this place. So interesting powers. She's a little enigmatic herself, which sort of suits this idea of the outsiders being this mysterious group. But supposedly at the end, we get hints that this is all going to be tied into planetary and the authority, which are um, books and properties that were of the wild storm universe and what have you. And they're kind of, globe spanning and dealing with, you know, universal type things. And, and the other thing that I should mention, if you don't want to talk about that tie into the Wildstorm universe is this, this complex that they're in come to find out it's this like sentient world ship, if you will. Um, not really a spaceship, but you know, it's from another I think it's a carrier. I think it's a carrier. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's very similar to, you know, a ship or a, um, a transport, a transport that like you would have seen in planetary or in the authority. And yeah. the bleed is specifically mentioned that space between dimensions, that space between different multiverses. So I wouldn't go so far as to say this is a retread of uh, the authority or if planetary uh, Lansing and Kelly are better than that, but it's clear that DC is going to tie this in uh, how well it's going to work. I, I don't know. I was surprised that, especially being that it was the first issue, we weren't introduced to more characters. I'm sure more characters are coming. My guess is it's going to be mostly new characters, but that's just a guess. I, I don't actually have any idea. Um, but do we need a planetary series? Do we need an authority series? I, I'm i not, to be honest, I got to be honest, even though I'm big fans of these writers, I, I don't really have much interest in an authority or a planetary series. I feel like that's it's one of those concepts that was it worked back when Warren Ellis first did it because it was a bit unexpected and it was um, it was a new idea. Now the whole idea of a, a team of supposed heroes kind of operating outside the lines, you know, and operating outside of Earth, you know, that's, the bleed was kind of a a, a metaphor for the fact that they were willing to do anything, go anywhere. Like I said, go outside the lines, be proactive rather than reactive in terms of quote unquote, saving the world. Um, that was an, a, more of a new idea 
when Ellis did it back in the late nineties, early two thousands, whenever it was now that idea has been done to death, right? Like the whole idea of an anti-hero a hero, you know, are, are you even a hero if you're willing to, you know, kill villains and, and that sort of thing like that stuff has been retread and retread and retread so many times, partly because planetary and authority were so, um, successful back in the day. So I have mixed feelings about how well this might work. Um, the first issue, the strength was in the characterization, in the interactions between Luke Fox and uh, Kate Kane, which I love Batwoman. I love Kate Kane, so I was happy to see her. I was very intrigued by this new character, Drummer, uh, as well, and the interactions between her and Luke and her and Kate Kane. Um, so that's where the strength was. The story itself, this idea of them finding this transport from another dimension or whatever um and and you know going through the gauntlet of finding where the reactor was and all that that was all just you know been there done that didn't feel particularly original i also i i didn't i didn't really enjoy the art that much um it, it was i'm used to cleaner art from robert carey and this art and i'm sure it was purposeful because uh, it did have a visceral feel to it um, but it just wasn't clean. It was very sharp in places. Um, and yeah, it just wasn't what I'm used to from him. So I'm sure he was trying to evoke some sort of mood, but it didn't work that well for me. It just felt a little messy and unfinished. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess we'll see. It's only one issue, so it's hard to really judge. Um, but just the idea of another, you know, planetary, like if this is going to be planetary or authority, just call it that and leave the outsider's name for something for that concept that Brian Edward Hill uh, had, you know? Um, but I get, it. I mean, when you, when you think about it back in the day, Wildstorm couldn't have used the name outsiders cause DC owned it, you know, the copyright and trademark and what have you, but it is accurate when you talk about what planetary uh, was, what authority was, how they operated, like I said, outside the lines. Um, so yeah, I mixed feelings about this one. Um, but if anything, these writers are very talented. So, um, if anybody can make it work, it's these two. Uh, what, what do you think about it, Rocky? Well, I want to be very clear here. I, I love planetary. I got both the omnibus, uh, volumes of vo absolute, uh, planetary volumes one and two. It is, uh, easily, uh, easily in my top 10 greatest comic book, 27 issue series of all time. It is absolutely phenomenal. And I don't know what DC is thinking here. I got to tell you right off the bat. Uh, I love the concept of planetary. Uh, I distinguish planetary very, very distinctly from authority. Planetary, they're archaeologists of the unknown. And, and uh, Lucius Fox here, he, his, he's dressed in white. He looks exactly like Elijah Snow. Uh, Jaquita w Wagner is... Uh, who was a character, one of the th uh, top uh, three characters in Planetary. She's played by an older woman who's not called the drummer. And the drummer was a male character in the original Planetary. And those three got together. And then there's, a, there's another person, Ambrose Chase, who was the fourth man. Actually, Elijah Snow ended up being the fourth man. They ended up fighting ultimately this evil version of Fantastic Four by the end. It, it, but it was an incredible sto story. And it, it dealt with analogs of Doc Savage and all these, and Flash Gordon and all these other 
all these other, uh, all these rare archaeological gems that they would find, these fictional characters that actually existed throughout the uh, time, p- periods of time in Earth's history. It was just phenomenal. It was a great series. And he- here, what is, uh, what is DC doing here? Well, these are, these are complete total ripoffs of those characters. Uh, total ripoffs. I gotta, I gotta wonder. I mean, I know Warren Ellis has been canceled. But if you want to do planetary, bring back planetary. And well, okay, I'd prefer Warren Ellis write it, but I get it. He's canceled, and people want to know why he's been canceled. You can Google it. It's a controversial thing, whatever. Uh, whether he deserved it or not, I, I'm not going to comment on that. I, but it, it's the reality is, is that uh, I just feel that you should maybe leave planetary alone uh, because the art here is subpar. People are going to read this as someone who loves planetary. I instantly recognize this as planetary instantly. And because I'm a huge planetary fan, even after all these years, very disappointed in the art first issue. Uh, I mean, it, it teases a bit. Uh, it teases a bit uh, that we got, we, we do, that is the carrier. That is the carrier that travels in and out of the bleed from different parts of the multiverse that, that the authority use. So this, there is some overlap. J- J- Jace, you mentioned it. There's some overlap of concepts that uh, the, uh, the planetary members never use the carrier in the entire series that I can recall, but the authority did. And, and here, there, there's a there's a tribute to the original artist on Planetary, John Cassidy. One of the characters, Doctor Cassidy, in the series is actually ends up hooked up to the mainframe of the carrier in this opening issue, and he's staying permanently linked to the carrier. As and the purpose of this carrier is to essentially tr- cataloging the unknown, cataloging the unknown and the fantastic. So this is ultimately like almost like challengers of the unknown and like a a. a, a super sci-fi take twist on the Fantastic Four, which is what Planetary was. And this has a lot of potential, but I got to tell you, having read this issue, I've already read the second issue already. I snuck ahead. I had to read it. Uh, It's not as good as Planetary, but the concepts, if they were done right, are, these are really cool concepts. And there's, there's even on the final page here, we see the Planetary book, the Planetary Guide. We know that every, every century has a spirit of the, of the century. Jenny Sparks of the Authority was the spirit of the 20th century. She died and was replaced by another character who became the spirit of the 21st century. It looks like they've in the, they have a hall of sort of spirits of the various centuries in the carrier that's shown on the last page along with the Planetary Guide. Uh, uh, Lansing and Kelly are dealing with a lot of high high bro concepts here that were dealt with in Planetary, and have, and in my view, I don't think they've been expanded on much by DC at all. Uh, I'm a little disappointed that this hasn't gotten more hype and that this wasn't gifted with, and I say this with great respect, a better artist and maybe a higher profile creative team. But I'm going to cut Kelly. Uh, uh, I'm going to cut uh, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly some slack on this, and I'm hoping to see where this goes in the first story arc. But uh, I'm. It's great to see Planetary. Again, I just wish it wasn't called Outsiders, and I wish it had its own comic. <laughs> so it's weird. Sorry, you're on, you're on mute again. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's baffling the choices that like why call this outsiders? Like again, I I, I go back to what I was saying earlier about planetary, um, and and you know you mentioned it yourself. It's kind of a mashup of the two. You know, authority was really the the ideas of heroes being proactive and going after villains, and then planetary obviously, like you mentioned, a little more of the sci-fi Fantastic Four push to the limit, mashing up those two ideas. Yeah, it's it's been done before, so. Uh, again, I, 
I have, you know, faith in these guys, but I, I agree with you. I mean, and that's the thing that, that got me. Like I went back and like, obviously I look at the credits first. I wasn't very far into the book before I was like, wait, who's this artist? Cause I'm not really digging this art. And I went back and looked at, saw it was Robert Carey. I was like, wait, what? Um, so again, maybe he's trying a different style. Maybe he thinks this suits um, the mysterious nature of the story better, but yeah, like just cleaner lines, man. <laughs> that's all it needs is some cleaner lines. Uh, anyway, let's move on. We have Green Lantern number five. This is from writer Jeremy Adams. Art by Zermanico. Uh, colors by Romulo Fajardo Jr. Letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, we're up to issue five of this, so we're getting a decent idea of uh, what the point of Adams' Green Lantern is. Very different feel from what his Flash has. Uh, I do feel like it suffered from that uh, Night Terrors interruption. Um that's part of the reason it feels like we should be so much further along than issue five. Um, but in this issue, we're really seeing um, Sinestro at his old evil self. Uh, and we're seeing the limitations of what Hal can do with his ring. Um, and really why, in my opinion, Hal's the best Green Lantern ever. Um, because Adams is, is going back and mining some concepts, some classic Silver Age concepts of Green Lantern, but in a more serious way than things were done in the, in the silver age. Um, and so despite those limitations to his ring, Hal finds a way. Uh, and that's what, I, that's what I like. I, I, I just, as much as, uh, and you know, Jeremy talked about this when he was on the show last, as much as when you're telling a green lantern story, you feel that pull to space. You feel the pull as a writer, uh, Jeremy was telling us, uh, to write a, you know, big grand space opera, um, and if you think that's a bad thing, you can blame Jeff Johns. And if you think that's a good thing, you can give credit to Jeff Johns because, you know, <laughs> he's really the one that, that made it uh, during his run where every story was this big, you know, huge sprawling epic with different uh, colors of the lantern spectrum and what have you. Um, but man, when I grew up reading Green Lantern back in the day, my favorite era, it, it was that era where he was on he didn't have the ring file. John Stewart first got the chance to wear the ring on a regular basis. And Hal was on earth. It, it was on earth. Um, and yeah, even though he would go on space adventures, you know, once in a while, he spent a lot of his time on earth. Ferris aircraft was a big part of the story as well. And, and that's where we are with this. So maybe that's why I'm enjoying it so much. It's the nostalgia. Uh, but the Zermanico art is gorgeous. The colors are gorgeous. Um, yeah. I'm really digging this. And I love that it's a uh, howl against Sinestro. And as much as they are kind of opposite sides of the same coin, you know, it's sort of a classic um, aspect of both these characters. They are both sort of trapped here on earth. They have more in common um, than they realize. And we haven't, or Jeremy Adams hasn't explored that that much, but I have a feeling it's coming. So we'll see how that all uh, plays out. But yeah, uh, really digging this, um, but I guess it's to be expected. I, I've come to trust Jeremy Adams and his storytelling sensibility. So what were your thoughts on it? I think uh, compliments to Jeremy Adams because he very rightly creates a story that 
I'm going to I'm going to be blunt here. It is somewhat decompressed, I think, but to the benefit of all of us, because we get more of Examonico's fantastic visuals, because this is really just an extension of, you know, a story from from last issue. And it's going to continue into next issue where uh, Hal Jordan next issue has a huge battle against Sinestro. And but this the the, the visuals here are just fantastic. And, you know, that it's basically Sinestro sending drones, attack drones and missiles to uh, Tokyo. Washington, Moscow, and and there's a and this all there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of uh, action pack a- action scenes and there's even a scene where Hal Jordan, who's we, we know he, he's he Hal Jordan's very good at dealing with his own fear, but he's also very good that he even gives a speech to a Tokyo reporter, a Japanese reporter telling other people don't be fearful that he's been all over the universe and one thing about people of earth we have courage and so i mean he uh he does something we one does not normally associate green lantern with giving speeches that's more wonder woman's domain but it's nice to see how give lip service to such things uh he doesn't just walk the walk he talks to talk too <laughs> and so that was pretty cool i i love the, there was the visual at the near the end where he he uses his ring some cool constructs of it looks like a, a tiger and, a, and an eagle uh going up high into the atmosphere to try to destroy two missiles that are on different sides of the earth. And, but he's only got so much time, but he's got to utilize a little bit of science and basic math there by going up into the atmosphere and, and taking out the missiles. I thought it was well done. Fantastic art. Uh, some, a couple of great double page spreads and uh, uh, minor little criticism on the story here. Uh, at the end, he ends up fighting Sinestro. At the end, Sinestro gets all upset, and it looks like Sinestro has a red lantern ring of rage. And I'm wondering why Sinestro even bothered creating all this chaos in the first place if he had a, a red lantern ring, which can't he use the red lantern ring to sort of escape Earth's atmosphere? Because Sinestro wants to get off the Earth because he, in, pre- in the last issue, in, in I think it was the second last issue, he told... He approached Hal in a bar and said, give me your ring. I want to leave this planet because, you know, it's basically been cordoned off by the United Planets. So, but now, so Sinestro just seems to be wanting to create chaos. But why? Because he, he has a red lantern ring. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little bit curious there. But uh, in, in any event, uh, it's, it's, it's a visually stunning issue and action-packed, and I, I did take a sneak peek. Next issue is the same thing, fantastic visuals. Jeremy Adams is really on a hot streak, and so is, so is the artist he's working with, uh, Examanico. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty good. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, my take, my take was that, he, yeah, he, he's sending out these missiles everywhere trying to create a fear because he doesn't have a fear battery to power his, his yellow ring. And then when that doesn't work because of Hal, and Hal does he, – he solves the problem with his brain instead of using brawn. Oh, okay. Brawn actually stopped the, the missiles. But that was the whole point. He was going to charge up the yellow ring with fear. And when that uh, backfires, he gets so pissed off that sure. he's actually – he taps into the – yeah, the, the oh, okay. rage, the red of rage. So I didn't yeah, know he could I, do that. I didn't know that's how a, how a Sinestro ring gets powered up by other people's fear. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, typically you, you have the yellow battery, right? But he didn't have yeah. the yellow battery. So, you know, his next huh. best thing was, oh, let me let me generate enough fear. If there's enough fear out there, I can tap into it. Because when you think about it, I mean, any battery in the emotional spectrum, whether it's, you know, green and willpower or, you know, red rage or yellow fear, whatever, it's it's all powered by the emotional spectrum. The the the, the emotions, the amount of that emotion that's in, uh, you know, in the universe as a whole 
they're trapped on Earth, so let's say Earth as a whole in this particular yeah. um, in this particular instance, Lord knows there's enough rage out there, uh, especially politically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if any, if, if we want to, you know, nitpick, it would have been like Sinestro should have. He he was pissed off already. He should have thought about going rage uh, to begin with. A lot easier, I think, than fear. But yeah. sometimes Sinestro, for all his brilliance and cunning, um, he's not that actually actually that smart when it comes to like planning and forethought. You know. Uh, he's always been that way. He, he's sort of blinded by his own ego and arrogance. And, and my, you know, my, my answer to that and Jeremy's answer to that would probably be, um, well, yeah, he's going to use what he's comfortable with and he's comfortable with fear. He likes the idea of being the one that controls fear and um, probably didn't even think about using rage, but that's yeah. uh, what he's got. That's what he taps into once he realizes yeah. how pissed off he is at Hal. So, and, yeah. and we should, we should make a note that Sinestro did mention here and Hal confirmed it, that there is something wrong with the emotional spectrum. They both know that something is screwed up with the emotional spectrum. Uh, and that's in conjunction with uh, the secret to why Hal was exiled to earth, uh, which will be revealed next issue and how Sinestro ended up there. So it's going to be, uh, you know, Adams has a story to tell and uh, he's taken his time getting there and we're being gifted with a lot of beautiful art, art as the, as we're on this uh, narrative journey. Yeah, there are a couple of things that, you know, continuity-wise, and, and we all know how messy DC continuity is right now, but there's a couple of things that at this point, like, they sort of, you know, they've made a point of, of making these changes or what have you, uh, and, and they want them to stick, but it's only when it's convenient for them sort of thing. So at this point, it's like, just put it back to the way that people know it is. I mean, it's been years now since Bruce Wayne's lost his – fortune but other than a few stories here or there um it doesn't really seem to affect him he still seems to have as much so money rich. as ever <laughs> yeah he still yeah. has enough money to go and create batterings and any equipment he needs or whatever yeah. whenever he needs it so just put it back just put it back at this point same thing with with uh you know this idea of united planets and you know that, that a lot of that was uh, bendis um just put it just put it back just, I mean, I just got done saying how much I love Hal Jordan on Earth and what have you, but you can still have Hal Jordan be on Earth. It doesn't mean he has to be trapped there by the United Planets or whatever. It just, it just, it's just dumb. It just feels dumb. It, it feels like DC's uh, putting these arbitrary rules in place to tell specific stories, and they don't make sense. And in that way, they're making the stories feel um, like they have less impact. Uh, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Speaking but, of being lost, uh, well, there's space. a there's a backup. We can oh, uh, right. the cord right. backup. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a cord backup. Uh, good thing you brought it up because DC just announced recently there's going to be a Sinister Sons uh, story or, or series coming out. Yeah, we're going to have uh, the son of Zod along with Korg here, who uh, apparently it turns out is is right in his belief that he's the son of Sinestro. Um, so I've talked about this previously, uh, super sons written by, uh, Peter J. Tomasi. Well, he's the one that's writing the sinister sons as well. He's the one that writes this story. Uh, Peter J. Tomasi, um, handles the, uh, the writing David LaFuenta handles the, uh, the art. You know, we talked about this when they did the first issue, kind of a, a speculator alert. Hey, uh, you know, first appearance of, of Sinestro's son, if you want to, go and pick it up. Um, it may at some point have some value. Who knows? 
uh, I should mention uh, Tamara Bond Villana's colors. Rob Lee does letters. Uh, I, I like the idea of Sinestro having a, a son a, a, of this age. We know he has a daughter, Sornik, who's a little more sophisticated and very <laughs> sure. different. Yeah, very, very, yeah, very good looking as well. Yeah. Um, and the first, actually have the page where she first becomes a Yellow Lantern because she was a member of the Green Lantern Corps. She becomes a Yellow Lantern. I have it hanging up right here. Um, original art from Brad Walker. Um, but anyway, uh, she always was at odds with her father. Uh, and it, that's very different when you contrast it with what Korg, who seems to worship his father. And you can see why, right? Uh, we get sort of his origin, I suppose you'd say, in this particular issue. Uh, so he lives on this sort of backwards planet where he's mem- member of like a street urchin gang, you know, think Oliver Twist. Um, and we find out, yes, his mother just abandoned him there, said she, she, she was going to be back, never came back. And so he's forced to steal uh, and hand off to this uh, this, you know, character who, again, very Oliver Twist, uh, supposedly cares for these orphans and what have you. Uh, really, he's just looking to enrich himself. And so you can you can understand the different upbringing, whereas Sornik, you know, grew up with family and community and friends on Korgar. Korg didn't. That's why he's called Korg, because um, this character is like, yeah, I know you're from Korgar. I shortened that to Korg. That's why you got your name, because your brother just abandoned you here, what have you. So he, he thinks of himself as you know the son of sinestro and looks at it the the upbringing he's had and thinks about sinestro and how sinestro doesn't bend a knee to anyone sinestro has all the power what have you and he sees that as a good thing so he aspires to be like his father sinestro very different than sornik uh it'll be interesting when that meeting ever happens between korg and sornik um so I, i really like the concept i have from the very first um uh, backup story we got with Korg in it. The only thing that I don't care for, and it's not that the art is bad. Lafuente's art is fantastic. He's a he's a fantastic artist. I just don't think his style, which is much more of an animated style, kind of almost like an all ages style. I just don't think it's suited for this type of story. Um, it, it just it, it to me he should be doing like Scooby Doo comics and that sort of thing, you know, rather than superhero stuff um, because he does have that very animated all ages sort of feel. Um, and, and this is so, sort of a more, you know, grounded and um, story with, with, you know, more emotion and what have you. And it, it just, it feels weird when I read it and I look at this art again, not to say the storytelling is bad or the composition or whatever. It's all, it's all fantastic, beautiful color work as well. It just, it just feels weird. It just feels weird. Um, I think somebody, you know, with uh, finer line weights and just a different sensibility would give the story more impact rather than having this art style that, if anything, sort of lessens the impact, if you know what I'm saying. Um, But I'm still very excited. Uh, I don't remember what Zod's son's name is off the top of my head, Um, but I can only imagine. I think it's uh, Lars. Isn't it Larzod? Yeah, that sounds. Something yeah, like that. that sounds right. <laughs> Something like um, I, I, I butchered that. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, you think about the the ways that John Kent and Damian Wayne, you know, the original Super Sons, think about the ways they got along, the ways they didn't get along, why there was sort of abrasiveness between the two of them, just di- having different outlooks on on life. Um, I don't know that that's going to be the same here with Korg and Lars because they they have sort of similar outlook. 
very different upbringing. So, you know, Lars was raised as royalty. Um, so maybe that's where the friction will come from, but it's going to be interesting to see. And uh, I'm excited to see. I don't think La Fuente is the artist on that, but I'm going to check on that while you give us your thoughts on the backup. Uh, well, the only thing I would say is that there's no indication, there's no actual evidence presented in, in either the, this is the third chapter of Corrigan. There's no evidence presented that he's in any way, shape or form related to Sinestro. Uh, his, his story, even general, the general Nagaf, who is actually the head of this orphanage household says, that, says to Gokorg that you were left here by some lady who heard I took unwanted dregs and put a roof over their heads. And then she left. And then I'm, I, I don't, rec I don't remember. And, and I'll, I certainly stand to be corrected because I've forgotten story points before. I, I don't remember. I don't know why, why this Korg thinks he's Sinestro's son. I, I don't know why he, he thinks that. Is there, there's, is there a memory that he has? Uh, where I don't, you know, it looks like he was dropped off when he was very young to this orphan. So I think there's still more story to tell here because clearly, clearly Korg is the son of, or is the son of Sinestro. He, that's the whole central conceit behind pairing him with Larzad and having sinister sons. So clearly that's the case. So I think there's more story to tell here. It, it, this is the third chapter. There's at least one more, I believe, to tell the story of Korg. And uh, I do think it's an interesting concept uh, that you're going to have sort of like a counterpoint to the super sons, the sinister sons. Might be a little bit cliche, a little bit on the nose, but, you know, it can be fun. I agree with you that the art is a little bit maybe, maybe too childish and animated, but at the same time, uh, it, it it might work. It might work depending on how it, you know. Once he teams up with Larzad and to see how the story feels. Peter Tomasi, of course, is the is the guy that wrote Super Sun. So he, I'm sure he's got a game plan. I'm curious to see what what it is. And there, you know, uh, it, it's funny how DC keeps trying to you know recapture the magic that they lost now that they aged up the Super Sons. And you really can't have a Super Sons team up anymore. Really, you really can't anymore. So now you got to try to find an analog, and so you got the Sinister Sons. And are you gonna are you gonna try to capture that magic once again? Good luck. I uh, I'm not saying you can't. If anybody can do it, Peter Tomasi can. Uh, but so far, Peter Tomasi's got to be careful here because I got to be honest and say that I'm not picking up anything so far with Korg that I like. Because you know, I mean, Damien, I mean, Damien is sort of a narcissistic jerk, but he's a good guy. And, you know, you, you can still have some bad traits and be a likable character. You can still, you can be a villain and be a likable character. So far, Korg is kind of, Korg is just miserable. Korg is mean and hateful toward General Nagaf uh, for no reason. He's kind of a dick for the sake of being a dick. And he's a thief for the sake of being a thief. I haven't really seen a hell of a lot of redeeming qualities from Korg, and that's what I'd like to see more. Make him a little bit more likable here. Give me something to tether on to, a likable bad guy in some capacity, as opposed to just all all young and a young Hellion. But uh, but we shall see. Jury's still out on this. He's he's a dick for no reason. This guy's like take makes him go out and steal for him just to, to give him a meager existence and a little bit of food that then he knocks out of his hand when the guy's trying when Korg's trying to eat it well, I, I won't say I, won't, well, I, I don't know for, for whatever reason as much as Damian Wayne was always a jerk I never liked him you're right that Korg's a total jerk but it, it feels a little more justified in because he guy does have a pretty rough existence I don't know there's some reason I like I like Korg I, I, I like him. You say he's not likable. To me, he's he's likable. But I will agree with you that 
uh, I'll put it this way. He, he seems as a character very one-dimensional so far, and I can see myself getting tired of him if he only is a, ever a jerk because that's how he's come across so far. But again, I, 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 I give him a break on that because of the circumstances. But um, anyway, let's move on. La Fuente is the artist on Sinister Sons, as, uh, uh, as it turns out. So um, I don't know. I guess that style of art will continue. Maybe it'll, it'll grow on me and, and start to work for the story. The other thing you you mentioned, uh, you know, you can't really have Super Sun's story. You know, they've they've done a few here and there um, since then, and I I think you can still have a Super Sun story I guess. with time jumps just, and all that other jazz. And- yeah, yeah, with all the different, you know, they've gone out of their way to to say, you know, DC multiverse exists or what have you. It just I, I think that for DC fans, and maybe this is just you know on us as fans that we we care about stories more when they're in canon they're in continuity whatever they're else world stories or you know not on the main earth we just give them less um we assign less importance to them so while i i, I agree with you sort of you can't have a super sons story i think and have it count as much or have people care about it as much but you can you know you can still do it um and i'm by no means i'm giving a pass and saying that you know uh john kent should be should not have or should have been aged up but yeah, I said it back then that, they, that once he got his own series, they were never going to be able to de-age him, and that 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 okay. appears to be the case. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Next up, we have Superman Lost. We're up to issue eight. This is from uh, Christopher Priest on script, Carlo Pagulian on pencils and plot, Jason Paz on inks, Will Conrad on art, uh, Jeremy Cox on colors, and Willie Schubert on letters. Um, yeah. We saw last issue in an attempt to sort of snap Superman out of his out of his fugue, I guess, since he's been back. Lois goes to Lex Luthor, Luthor being Luthor. Um, I know why you're here before you even open your mouth. You want my help to, um, you know, snap Superman out of it. I've given you cancer. Uh, not exactly <laughs> what Lois had in mind, but really interesting concept from uh, from Christopher Priest. And Lois being Lois, being stubborn, being, you know, I, I, I can, you know, fix this myself. I'll figure out a way. Doesn't even tell Clark, um, doesn't even tell Superman. And so he doesn't find out till the end of this issue. Uh, so a little bit of a bridge issue, a little bit of setup. But what I loved about this issue was it showed that there was a deeper meaning behind the, the idea and the title of Superman Lost. Like all this time. I've been thinking, okay, Superman Lost is the story of, and we talked about it at the very beginning, what are we going to get here? Um, is it going to be Superman trying to get home, having various adventures and helping people along the way uh, while he's been doing this? Uh, as it turns out, it's a little different than that. After reading this issue, I get the feeling that it's more Superman is back on Earth, but he's still lost. He's not himself. He's not Superman. That is a much more interesting concept because we didn't really get the first. Uh, we got him sort of finding this planet that he he, he called Kansas because um, it had a place that reminded him of, of Kansas um, that was interesting because most of the atmosphere was would have been toxic to regular humans. And there was this isolated part that actually was an oxygenated atmosphere where none of the, none of the uh, – native inhabitants of the planet could live because oxygen was kind of poisonous to them. Um, but that's where he was for decades and decades. 
trying to uh, use that as a home base to find a way home. Yeah, the planet was called the, Hope. The planet was called Hope. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and trying to do things where he could help out um, the inhabitants of of that planet because they were there were two different factions and they were sort of diametrically opposed and, and what have you. Uh, and then when it comes to the point where that planet's going to be doomed, he has to go, venture out from that planet to go try to find uh, a way to save them. Uh, and now it's been so long with the whole idea of traveling that distance and how it affects time. He has to uh, come to terms with the fact that he, he failed. That planet is lost. Um, that planet is gone. Even if we were to be able to get back there, I'll, you know, it wouldn't exist anymore. Um, and so he's sort of torn. He's, even though he's back home on earth, he's not really present because he's dealing with the fact that he ab- abjectly failed to do what it is that he does as Superman. So there's all these different meanings and all this, all this depth and layer to the idea of him being lost. Um, and you know, credit to Lois. She knows Superman. Uh, she knows Clark better than anybody, and uh, maybe Luther as well. I guess because what Luther's done is going to work ultimately at the end of the day, um, because you can just see Superman sort of starting to come to terms and realize that he needs to be present on Earth where he is um, now that he's back. So just fantastic, just great, uh, great story work, great characterization by Christopher Priest uh, and Pagulian and fantastic art by Pagulian. This idea of Superman lost is not the idea of him being far out in space with no way to get home, but him being on earth and not being, not being himself, not being the hero that we know him to be because of circumstances that, that happened to him that he can't seem to let go. So, um, you know, oftentimes we hear writers or we hear, uh, writers say themselves, hey, yeah, Superman's such a hard character to write. I, you know, how do you challenge him? He's so powerful. And then you hear other writers, oh, especially Dan Jurgens, he always talks about dealing with the emotionality of Superman. That's how you have to approach it so you can tell interesting stories. This is a perfect example of how you tell a great Superman story, get into the mo- emotion of the character. Um, that's how you challenge him. So uh, I thought this was fantastic. Continues to be a, a really, really awesome title. Um, and I love that white Superman suit. Visual is fantastic. So, uh, what were your thoughts on this one? I, I really loved it, and I and Supergirl looks pretty damn hot. That she looks better in the white suit than Superman. Let's just say it. Come on, I mean, she looks amazing. And uh, uh, you talked about the theme of, of the title itself, Superman Lost. It's it's multi layered in this issue because we have, we have Metallo. Uh, some some credit. I got to give credit to writer Christopher Priest. He incorporates some aspects of what we've already seen in the Metallo storyline. In so far by by Philip Kennedy Johnson, at least uh, Metallo's struggles as as a as a character was struggling with his own past, and you know Superman battles Metallo, but Metallo won't even use the kryptonite against Superman because Metallo himself is somewhat lost, in looking for a purpose in his life because he feels because of his own circumstances, and. Uh, Kal-El has an interesting conversation with Kara, who Kara Kara thinks that Superman, you know, maybe maybe kick Metallo's ass instead of sitting there trying to talk to him. But clearly, the, because of Superman's experience being essentially lost for 20 years in space, he sort of has, he probably has in his own way, sort of an unconscious way to 
relate now to Metallo in some way. And he still lost himself as to, you know, again, trying to get his bearings back on Earth. And he feels probably undoubtedly that he failed the planet, the previous planet called Hope that he was on. Uh, he, he hasn't really gotten over that. Meanwhile, he's not paying much attention to Lois. Lois, strangely enough, I, I was torn a little bit. I was surprised that why doesn't Lois, because I was asking myself, why doesn't Lois tell Superman that, by the way, Lex Luthor gave me cancer? And because you would think that, you know, is I mean, is she afraid Superman's going to kill Lex? I mean, surely she doesn't think that. That's not in Superman's nature to kill. But she doesn't tell him. But there is a... Uh, there's another reason why I think potentially she isn't. Uh, she doesn't say anything. There, there's a major revelation at the end of this issue. And um, interestingly enough, Superman ultimately discovers that Lois has has uh, uh, has cancer at the end of the issue. He finds her medication, but he also finds what uh, – I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that looks like a pregnancy test, isn't it? Yeah, but I think – Is she I pregnant? I don't think she's pregnant. I, I think what she's doing uh, and kind of the sense I got Just is she's to cover it up. She, yeah. She's pretending to be pregnant so she can say when she's throwing up and she's not feeling well, she she's saying, Oh, it's because I'm pregnant uh, rather than it's because I have cancer. I, I, that that's the sense that I got. What a, what an unbelievable, what an awful thing to do to your husband. Come on, Lois. Seriously. I don't know. I, I, I think I would find that very hard to forgive. You're going to cover up your cancer by saying you're pregnant? And, and, and Clark has not said anything about her being pregnant up to this point. It's like, isn't he discovering it for the first time? Like, this is news to me. I, I didn't know they, she was well, the pregnant. Other, yeah, yeah. The other part of it is, um, you know, Lex is narrating and he's saying, yeah, how, how can somebody who has x-ray vision not know that his wife has cancer. And so, you know, and Lois, this, this just happened. I'm not saying it was a good choice. I'm not defending her choice, whatever. But if she tells Clark that she's pregnant, then she knows that he can't use his x-ray vision on her body because that's that true. Damage. So I think, you know, but, not, not a great, not a great decision. Anyway, you slice it, but, but, but I mean, logical makes sense. Yeah. She's but trying he's to hide Superman. it from him. That, he, he'd yeah. be able to hear a heartbeat. He'd be able to tell his physiology. You think he'd pay a little well, bit but more. Again, it just, I think this just happened. I mean, and my take is yeah. this, it, this issue basically happens within, you know, a 24 hour, 48 hour period after she gets the cancer is it, very quick because, you know, we, Luther even says, you know, I gave her cancer. She's got sure. to tell him right away. She's going to be dead inside of you know a week, ten days. I, so I guess it's all happening, yeah, really quickly. But well, yeah, he, terrible decision by her, by uh, on her part, no doubt. Yeah, and <laughs> but and well, Christopher Priest does say it's day eighty-seven, uh, day eighty-six, and day eighty-seven. So he, he with his captions, he is sort of he is providing that information. I just got to maybe pay more attention to the to the black uh, narr narr expository boxes there. But um, the other thing he does, a quick note, is he references he brings uh, Christopher Priest did do the twelve issue uh, Black Adam series, and he has Black Adam appear here. And Black Adam talks about you know when he was gone for five thousand years, he wasn't actually gone from Earth for five thousand years. It was just five thousand years had passed on Earth. So Black Adam himself can't completely relate to what Superman has gone through. But Black Adam does tell Superman that you know, you know, don't waste your the gifts that you have left. And um, yeah, and there's also a flashback to uh, to 
how Superman got back to Earth, and that was with Adam Strange and the Zeta Beam uh, from the planet Ran, and so there was interactions there. This was actually the most, in my view, the most substance-filled uh, issue to date, and I was... Uh, the final panel has Lex Luthor staring at a painting, and I'm wondering if it's symbolic. What is the painting that Lex Luthor is staring at? He looks so majestic. He looks so powerful and, and narcissistic and just... He just looks like classic Lex and he's staring at a picture, but I was, I was wondering if you know what that picture is or if it has any deeper meaning in the, in the picture, but maybe, maybe it doesn't, but. Uh. Yeah. I don't know what the, what the picture is. And for some reason, Lex thinks when Superman comes, he's going to come breaking through that wall. And that's exactly what we'll see. Knowing it's Christopher Priest, a hundred percent that painting has meaning. We just don't know what it is. Uh, but I suppose we'll find out next issue because we know Superman is going to come crashing through that wall. Uh, now that he knows that uh, that Lois has cancer and Lex gave it to her. Um, but I, I, yeah, I agree with you. I loved Black Adam showing up uh, and, you know, Priest comes right out and says it through Black Adam's words. If it, I have a better understanding of Superman than anyone because I'm the only one on this planet that went through what he went through. And, it, and for Black Adam, it was even worse, right? Superman g did get a shortcut. You mentioned it. He got caught that ride home with Adam Strange and the Theta Beam. Black Adam had to travel the whole way on his own. And Priest definitely intimates that's part of the reason Black Adam's such a dick because he was out there alone for, you know, <laughs> as long as it took him to get back. It wasn't 5,000 years, but, you know, even if it was 500 years, that's that's still just – that's going to affect – that's going to damage somebody's personality. That's going to damage their psyche, and clearly it did for, uh, for Black Adam. So, yeah, fantastic series. It's in one of those uh, – like most Christopher Priest series, it's going to read really well uh, as a collected edition. Uh, okay, moving on, we have Wesley Dodds, The Sandman, number two, from writer Robert Venditti, art is by Riley Rosmo, colors by Yvonne Placencia, letters by Tom, Tom Napolitano. You know, this is one of those situations where we've gotten so much story in only two issues from Venditti that I found myself surprised. Wait, this was only issue two? This feels like it's been going on longer. Venditti's done such a fantastic job of establishing the, the world and the time frame uh, of the Sandman story, you know, 1940s, a uh, little before or late, late 1930s, early 1940s, before World War II, uh, just done such a fantastic job of um, really establishing who Wesley Dodds is, you know, why he has the, I, I don't want to say issues that he has, but why he, he struggles the way that he does, um, his hopes, his dreams, his relationship with, um, people that were friends with his father, people that now mentor him, uh, the military, his girlfriend, like all that has been established in two sh very short issues here, uh, as well as sort of the, the point behind the story. And that's this idea that somebody's discovered his secret identity, stolen his weapons, and we see at the end of this issue, they're going to use them for nef nefarious purposes. Um, I, I, I just love this. Like I, I am not as familiar. I never read any of the Sandman mystery theater. Uh, from back in the day. Um, but I, I feel like I'm getting to know Wesley Dodds through this story better than I ever have before. And and maybe a lot of this characterization for Wesley Dodds has been established before in some of those other um, series that he's been in. I just haven't read them, so so I can't speak to that. Um, but I do feel like I, even after two short issues, I understand who Wesley Dodds is as a character much more than I ever have before. You know, a lot of the Golden Age heroes, those stories, they were just based on a, the fact that 
comics were intended for a different audience back then. It was a different time. Uh, there wasn't a lot of characterization. It was the bad guys were white hats and the bad guys were black hats, you know, good versus evil, uh, good versus bad. And there wasn't any need for a lot of characterization, a lot of depth. Um, you know, all the heroes were straight white dudes uh, that, you know, did the right thing. And really they were morality plays with without a lot of complexity. Venditti's adding complexity for me to, to Wesley Dodds. And it's really fantastic. As far as the art goes, uh, Riley Rosmo just continues to get better and better. Fantastic choice for the series, especially when you start talking about using the, the, the sleep gas and inducing nightmares and what have you. Um, things are esoteric. Things are um, uh, ethereal. There's even times on the pages where the, the, the gutters, the, the space between panels, they're not straight lines. They're wavy lines, uh, which, again, suits, suits the idea of these being sort of uh, fantasies or, or make-believe or uh, delusions or however you want to, whatever you want to put it, the visions that people are getting because they've been exposed to these gases. Um, also, the I feel like his line work has tightened up uh, in terms of facial expression. He still exaggerates anatomy. That's just his style. It's just what he does. Um, but it's not so outrageous as I've seen it in, in times of the past. So I don't know. Uh, I think he's always been really talented, but I think at times he maybe hasn't been able to – know when he should be a little more restrained and not go so crazy. Um, and now it feels like, yeah, he, the more he works, the more he realizes when he really should cut loose. And what happens is when he does cut loose, it's that much more impactful because, you know, for lack of a better term, that the talking head scenes are more subdued and they do look a little more traditional. So then when we do get the action scenes or the scenes that are, uh, depicting the the sleep gas or nightmares or that sort of thing. When he does cut loose, it, again, you're like, whoa, that's really crazy. That looks so wild and out there. So yeah, kudos to Riley Rosmo. I think he was the perfect, perfect choice uh, for this series. And uh, knowing Robert the way I do, I'm sure he's having a blast working with Riley. Uh, but man, if you're not reading this, this is a, this is a fantastic series. Once again, Ben Diddy showing um, he's a, he, he does his research. I'm sure he read pretty pretty much all the Wesley Dodd Sandman stuff he could get his hands on before he started writing this series. And that's probably why, for me, somebody who's not as familiar with the character feels in two short issues like the foundation has been laid very, very quickly. And now, moving forward, uh, Ben Diddy can start building on that and giving us uh, some additive stuff to um, to who the character is and his background and what have you. So yeah, really, really enjoying this. What'd you think? Oh, there, well, there's a darker version of the Sandman that's introduced here. And I think his name is the macabre man. Uh, the, the caption reads acrid fog veils the macabre man responsible for so much death. It's a dream that I think the Sandman that, that Wesley Dodds is having. And this macabre man is, looks like, well, it pretty much looks identical to Sandman, except that he's all cloaked in black with tinges of red. It looks pretty cool. And I, so yeah, obviously whoever is behind the, the villain's mask here was responsible for starting the fire of Wesley Dodd's home to cloak and to hide the fact that he stole all of Wesley Dodd's paper and all of his, all of the research that he did and all these deadly gases that he developed in, uh, you know, pre-World War, well, pre-World War 
two, I guess, because this is around 1940. And so it's uh, it's 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 interesting. It's building towards something. I like the supporting character, Diane Belmont, uh, his love interest. She's the daughter of the district attorney. So Wesley Dodds uses his his fiance, you know, she, as a she basically pulls some strings and he so he does have access to to information that helps him with some of his investigations as the Sandman. And uh, so far, you know, uh you know everything. Everything flows, and and the art really is fantastic. You nailed it. Well, I've you know it's funny. You know when we started re- talking about it's 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 so funny when you go back the two years the dialogue you and I have had reviewing comics when we talk about uh, Riley Rosmo. We started with 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 him on Harley Quinn, and we talked about how well it's not bad, and sometimes it was off, and then slowly you could see well you know this is really a great scene here boy this creative use of the paneling here and boy he's actually seems to be getting better oh my god i mean a gra- as you said just a gradual ongoing improvement and the scenes in the backgrounds here really are excellent even his faces is uh his drawing on faces is is start is has improved and and like i said the use of the creative use of the paneling with the characters themselves and with what's happening going on in the minds of the characters very creative very well done and and it's so nice to see Riley Rosmo because damn that guy's taken He's taken a lot of criticism and it's so nice to see an artist sort of come into his own and find a project that is more uniquely suited for him. So, you know, kudos to Riley Rosmo. Uh, it's a good pairing with Robert Venditti on the Sandman here. Yeah, my, my guess is that whether it's the, his actual mentor, you know, his father's friend, um, Wesley Dodd's father's friend that's actually behind the mask or somebody that he hired, that, that's my guess. Um, but there's also a part of me that goes, nah, Robert Venditti wouldn't do that. That that's too, uh, a little too on the nose. On the nose, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess, but I guess we'll see. I mean, there's a reason that people, e- even though it's a concept that's been done before, there's a reason that people do it. It's, it's cause it, it, it's sort of a tried and true, um, I don't want to say trope, uh, but it's sort of a, a, a tried and true method that's, uh, you know, applied in order to create creative drama character drama i guess so that 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 uh, yeah i don't know i go back and forth on whether it's his mentor or not so i guess we'll i guess we'll have to wait and see uh all right moving on next we have danger street number 11 from writer tom king jorge fornes is the artist dave stewart on colors clayton cal on letters give us your thoughts on this one well you know we're building to a head this is issue 11 uh, and this is a 12 issue series and uh full disclosure i i you know I, I did read issue 12 already, so I do know how it ends, and uh, I, I I couldn't resist. And uh, this is, I, I continue to be rewarded. I, I've been enjoying this series, and quite frankly, if you haven't been reading this series up to this point, this is probably probably not a great jumping on point when you when you're jumping to issue 11 so much has happened but it is a it's been a hell of a ride it's been a hell of a journey getting here all the characters have been moving toward ultimately coming together so we have these characters that could not be more different ranging from starman to war uh, warlord for god's sakes to lady cop to the dingbats of danger street uh to oh my god uh to the the green team and how all these characters come together that's that's the journey of the uh, previous well of these of ultimately what will be 12 issues and what happens here in this scene is just absolutely insanity but ultimately they know lady cop has the helmet of dr fate and they and the dingbats of danger street need the helmet to resurrect their their buddy good looks who was killed uh in uh, in unintentionally in 
as a fallout from the battle between Starman, Warlord, and Atlas. Atlas was holding up the universe, the world, so to speak. He was killed, so somebody's got to replace Atlas. That looks like it might have to be Good Looks, but you got to resurrect Good Looks to do that. And Good Looks is dead. How do you resurrect him? You need the helmet of Doctor Fate. Me in the mean. <laughs> Meanwhile, you've got you've got various members that also require the helmet of Doctor Fate to help them. Uh, in particular, the um, uh, the opposite of the green team, uh, the Outsiders themselves, not to be confused with the Outsiders of the comic book we just reviewed, but a very different Outsiders, namely from <laughs> the famous uh, of the of the first issues of the mid nineteen seventies from DC. In any event, this is all building to a head. Uh, Somehow, at the end of the series, Lady Cop ends up, there, there's an absolutely insane scene where, of all things, Creeper and Warlord end up getting shot by Lady Cop, of all things. It's total chaos. Somehow this works. I got to say that if somebody picked up this issue at random and saw this random blonde that they don't know, because uh, she's not actually called Lady Cop, I think, in this particular issue, although she is randomly at different points. And she randomly shoots the creeper and warlord. I mean, how that, it almost it almost boggles the mind that just some random untrained, you know, you know, some random female cop with a gun can take out warlord and uh, creeper. It's 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 crazy. And yet somehow the scene just works just because of the journey getting there. And there's a tragedy to it. <laughs> and then there's Orion that shows up. And there's something about Orion. Orion, the son of Darkseid, wearing a T-shirt that says Darkseid is. That just puts a smile on my face. I mean, it's an obvious reference, of course, to Darkseid is, which was the phrase uh, utilized in... Uh, um, um, not uh, Mr. Mr. Miracle series. And uh, Orion is there, of course, because the goal here is ultimately they need to save the universe. They need to... Somebody has to replace Atlas to hold up the, the world. And... Uh, the outsiders need to have their what have their curse lifted so that they can turn back into normal humans because they lost they lost this crazy scenario this they lost this game to the green team back when they were kids and oh my god somehow this story just puts a smile on my face and i um i can't wait to talk about the final issue but this was just yet one nice hop skip and a jump to that final issue i enjoyed it more wetting the appetite for me if you've been with it so long if you've if you've been with this for the previous 10 issues you definitely want to uh stick with this one and uh hopefully people will agree that i i think king nailed the landing on this at least uh to my liking so what do you think of this uh penultimate issue yeah, you know, I looked at the title page. I said, Codename Assassin. I'm like, okay, well, he's dead, but are we, we're going to, you know, explore more of his origin or whatever. And then he did, he's, no, he's dead. He doesn't show up at all. I did, yeah. that's my only nitpick. I didn't understand yeah. why this issue was called Codename Assassin. Yeah. Um, but putting that aside, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like this idea that this all goes down in the kitchen of this woman who has no superpower. She has no, you know, you say she has no training. She has training as a cop, but she has yeah, no training right. in dealing with, you know, the, this, idea of of these wild concepts and and we're going way out there when we talk about atlas holding up the world and we're dealing with high father and dark side and whatever and yeah. yeah she's just and not just it's not like she's a cop in new york city or a cop in central city or gotham or whatever where she's used to dealing with you know all these heroes or whatever no she's a cop in you know little podunk usa where you know danger street exists and is used to dealing with giving the the dingbats of danger street 
a grief for, you know, driving their ATV down main street or what have you, you know, she's small town USA, a hundred percent, but yet she's, she's the driving force of these ser- series. She's our POV character. Uh, and when push comes to shove, yeah, she handles her business. As you mentioned, she takes out creeper, she takes out warlord. And I keep going like for me, I, I just kept going back to that scene in the kitchen, especially, you know, so, um, creepers dead shot dead. Warlord shot dead. They bring uh, Goodluck's body. He's there, lay, you know, laid out next to them. They're going to use the <laughs> helmet of Doctor Fate to um, to bring them back. And this is no—I'm not impugning um, Goodluck's at all, right? Creepers, Creeper and uh, Warlord—they're they're fresh kills, as you were. But Jorge Fortes' depiction of Goodluck's—he's he's not looking good. He's not—he's been dead for a few days. Yeah, uh, maybe a little longer than that. He's not looking good, you know. Body's turned all dark gray. Eyes are—you know—have fallen back into his head. He doesn't—he doesn't look good. Uh, and I just—that's funny to me because you know, just his name—he's Goodluck's, right? He's Goodluck's. He, he, no, this is not a good look. <laughs> his body's laying there dead out the kitchen yeah. floor. So the art has been fantastic. Uh, we've said it time and time again. You mentioned it uh, once again when you were talking about the book. Just the idea of taking all these characters who have nothing to do with one another and weaving together, first of all, not just a story that makes sense by Tom King, but a story that's compelling and goes above and beyond and is so much better than you know a lot of the other uh, uh, stories that on their surface are a little more uh, you know a straight line from point A to point B. Um yeah, if you would have told me that King could do this to pull it off with this uh, level of skill, I probably would have believed you because it's Tom King. And that being said, this is still surprising me with just how good it is. Uh, King knows what he's doing, especially when it comes to choosing an artist for a project. We know that a lot of times when King ends up working with artists, they tend to work with him again because he is such a fantastic storyteller. So King's got this stable of artists that he works with now. You know, Mitch Garrods obviously comes to mind with Strange Adventures and and Mr. Miracle, Sheriff of Babylon, what have you. But, you know, uh, Clay Mann is another one. Now we've got Daniel Semper over in Wonder Woman, Jorge Fornes that he's working with here that he did uh, Rorschach with as well. Um, It just, it's fantastic. It's so good. Um, And... I didn't. Re- I wanted to go and read issue twelve so badly once I finished this, but I didn't want it to color my outlook on this particular issue, so I haven't <laughs> yet. But I probably will as soon as we're done recording, because uh, yeah, I want to see how it all comes together in the end. But uh, yeah, this has just been a really surprising, high quality story, and uh, I I can't wait to see what uh, what Tom and Jorge Fornes do next. Uh, all right, let's move on. Next up, we have World's Finest Teen Titans, issue number five from writer Mark Wade. Art is by Emmanuel Lupacchino. Colors by Jordi Belair. Letters by Steve Wands. For me, this was the weakest um, of the World's Finest so far, World's Finest Teen Titans that we've gotten from Wade so far. At the end of last issue, we got a hint that there was some mastermind behind kind of the recent attacks on the Teen Titans and somebody was recruiting um, different villains to go after them, put, put them together in this kind of super villain team. I like that idea. It's very classic and what have you. Uh, and we find out in, a, in kind of a flashback at the beginning of this issue that it's this guy named Haywire who 
a little more diabolical, I guess, in his um, behavior. He wanted to be a member of the Teen Titans, but he wanted to be proactive. You know, that whole idea of final solution, take out the Joker. You don't have to worry about any of his future victims, whatever. Obviously, the Teen Titans are, are not about to go to that level. So they said, you know, get out of here. You're never going to be a member of the team. The guy feels spurned. And now he's taking it out on the Titans. So, again, classic feel. And the, uh, this World's Finest Teen Titans has been, you know, we've talked about it before, in a way, a flashback to when these characters first got together. They're not quite the cohesive team in terms of feeling like a family and also in terms of um, capabilities. Uh, they kind of get their butts kicked here in this particular issue, and, and that causes some friction as well. Um, but yet it's in, it's set in kind of modern day, which is an interesting juxtaposition. But that all works fine. Uh, it's not necessarily groundbreaking or what have you, but it's kind of what you would come to expect from Mark Wade doing uh, sort of a, a version of early Titan stories that would fit into any era. The thing I didn't like about it is it just, it just felt choppy. Uh, this is the first time I felt like, Wade tried to jam in more into the, the pages of the story than he actually had room for. Um, but it's a minor nitpick. I mean, if you're fans of the Teen Titans, if you're a fan of uh, what Wade's been doing in the series so far, you're going to enjoy this just fine. Um, but yeah, especially when we get issues like we did last issue with um, a really kind of a decompressed story, exploring the relationship uh, with Wally West and, um, and Roy Harper and Garth Aqualad, um, you know, we really character focused and, and it all took place over uh, a weekend at, uh, at Wally's house. And then you jump from that to this where, you know, maybe part of it was because of the flashback, but it just didn't flow as well for me. Um, so for me, this was the, the weakest. Now that's not to say it's not a good issue. It's still above average, but it, it just felt like the weakest, um, of them so far. I kind of wish that, uh, this particular, like the the, the information and, and, and the story beats and the plot of this specific issue have been spread out over two issues. I think it would have worked a little better, um, but I don't know. Maybe that's just me. What do you think, Rob? I, I, I actually, I liked it. I liked it. Wade is doing, like we've said, he's doing something that's absolutely necessary. He's updating the history of the Teen Titans so that their history, their beginnings aren't in the 1960s, but they're actually in the 2000s or the 2010s or whatever the case might be. So he's updating it because these characters, because they never age, you got to do an update once in a while. It's a long time coming. And I think he's doing a good job here. You mentioned that he's crammed a lot of story in here. And I actually, I don't mind that. I, I don't mind that because... I, I would prefer that, even though there's some, maybe there are some shortcomings there. I agree that maybe it's cramming a little bit too much. On the other hand, I don't know if I want this to be dragged out for, you know, I don't, I don't need two issues telling what's in this one issue. I get it. Uh, the Terror Titans, this is their first encounter with the Terror Titans where they're basically humiliated and beaten and they're downtrodden just when they're at their lowest, just when they're really starting to get to know each other. We've already been sub, we've already been shown by Mark Wade some really great character development. We know how dysfunctional the, we know what the various character flaws of each of the characters are from Roy Harper to Donna Troy to, to Garth, uh, uh, and we, we, we know that the, 
these these are these are teenagers with their own uh, degrees of dysfunction and, and angst and what have you. And it, this issue culminates with Dick Grayson finally having enough. You know, he's embarrassed. He's being grounded by Batman. He doesn't have quite the freedom. He's under greater pressure. He's got his own pressures being uh, the sidekick and essentially adopted son of Batman. And he can't tell the rest of the team. He can't open up and tell them who he is. But he finally breaks down and reveals his identity to them at the end. And I think that this is sort of like the progress and the evolution that the Titans need. And it's showing us in the early years that they have to, to, to truly trust your teammates. You've got to know your teammates and arguably know who they are. And it's interesting. And, and, and there's also a little bit of clever rewriting of history, I think, by, by Wade, by sort of expanding the roster a bit and adding a, some, uh, adding a lot to the characterizations. And what I like about this is that uh, having taken a tease at the first few issues of Beast World coming up, which, and I say that positively, I actually, I'm glad that we're getting this from Wade because I feel, I feel that it's needed because ironically enough, even though these are stories of the Teen Titans in the past, I feel that because of these stories of the past, Mark Wade is reminding me how far these characters have grown and have come. And I can appreciate them more being at the Justice League level, even if the story per se by Tom Taylor isn't quite Justice League level threat, although I think it will get there. Uh, I really appreciate this. So even though this is very different than what maybe Taylor's doing in uh, the, the Titans comic, I think that this is a good uh, corollary uh, to to that because it, it reminds us of just how far these characters have come. And so I, for that reason, I, I, I enjoyed this issue and uh, it's, it's nice to see. I hope, I hope this, I don't know what the sales are in this, but I hope more this attracts some new readership and gets foster some greater interest in these characters. Cause I do think they deserve it. And they are, we got to remind ourselves that they are the justice, the de facto justice league at the moment in their present uh, iterations. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that uh, this this is establishing sort of a new a new baseline, and and there are a lot of readers now, newer generation, they're not even aware that you know Titans uh, started back in the '60s. Um, you know, a lot of people probably more familiar with new Teen Titans from Wolfman and Perez, and obviously Titans Go cartoon, what have you. So, yeah, we'll see how that plays out. Um, and then uh, we haven't mentioned it on the podcast but uh, did you see the uh, the beast wars cover that there's going to be a lenticular one where the beast transformed or uh, garth beast boy transforms to starro bang back and forth so, uh, i haven't uh, i haven't seen that lenticular one no yeah yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of it, rough i don't know yeah i don't know how well that's gonna work I, i'm gonna i'm gonna quickly give a teaser and just say that as as absurd as i thought the concept of beast world was i will say that God damn, I think Taylor might have pulled it off. I, I was I was surprised that it was substantially better than I expected it to be. Substantially. Yeah, it should remind us. Usually it's remind everybody this time of year. So, you know, DC, <laughs> like a lot of people this time of year, they, they want to take time off for the holidays to be with their family. So this time of year, often we, we they work a little bit ahead. Um, and so we get all the – like a. You, typically, we have like one or two weeks ahead of time in the press previews. This time of year, it's often like we probably by the first of December, we'll have all the access to all the books through the end of the year. Um, 
again, just a logistics thing. So anyway, let's move on. Uh, Detective Comics number 1077 from writer Rom V, Jason Chan Alexander on art, Dave Stewart on colors, Ariana Mare on letters. Batman's about to be hanged. What'd you think? Uh, well, uh, everything, uh, Batman is about to be hanged, but, uh, you know what? Catwoman is putting together a crew to stop it. And, uh, it's, you know, I gotta admit just when this was, you know, Ram V has, man, I've been sort of up and down on this. I, I, I get the impression you have been as, as well, you know, it's been highs and lows with Ram V's storyline. Uh, but, and just when I sort of, I'm starting to lose interest in it or it's getting or it's starting to lose me or get too esoteric or too too out there all of a sudden boom last issue brought me back with Catwoman putting together a team with Commissioner Gordon and then of course we have Mr. Freeze joining in this issue and and of course they're going to save Batman Batman possessed by you know he's in his mind he's possessed by the uh, the Asmir and he's also got Barbados in his head and not to be confused with the storyline over in Batman where he's got all the Batman the multiple multiverse of Batman Zuranaz in his head so I mean if you can separate Detective Comics from Batman you'll enjoy Detective Comics a lot more I know I am the high point for me here is I really I really like to see Cheshire here I like the fact that there's a you know the relationship between uh Leon and Cheshire is something and, and it's even delved and talked about in, in the backup I I like I like how Cheshire's character is being utilized here by Ram V I actually enjoy it a little bit more here than I do over the pages of Green Arrow uh with with Roy Harper and what have you, and having read Green Arrow number six, I I like to see Cheshire getting some more screen time or comic book time, as you call it, or whatever. And I I really I like I like the interactions between between Leon and Cheshire, and I like that Catwoman. You know, Batman needs help, and Batman always when Batman's at his grittiest. He's known to bend some lines and bend some rules once in a while. But Catwoman is prepared to always go that just that little extra distance. And I love that Catwoman pisses uh, pisses Gordon off by by basically recruiting Mr. Freeze, recruiting Cheshire, who's known who's a who's a wanted terrorist herself. And of course, Selena doesn't care. She's gonna save the man that she loves, or if she doesn't love him, she certainly enjoys occasionally uh, having fun with him. But I I enjoy this. I really enjoy this. Uh, At this point, the Orgums are so arrogant. They even know that Catwoman's up to something. They know that Catwoman's up to something, but yet they don't, they almost don't even care. They, they, they figure that they've, they've got so much control over Gotham with the Asmir controlling the troglodyte masses, uh, controlling the Gotham underground uh, that, that they, um, they're, they're not worried. They feel they're in full they're, they're more or less in full control of most of Batman's mind and they're going to hang him. They want to create a spectacle. Uh, and, you know, even when even even though they become aware that Catwoman has broken into the underground cells that house Batman, uh, he basically goes down there and say, we will come for you. It's kind of a cool moment, really cool moment. She's I mean, she literally goes down there by basically saying, by the way, we're going to get you out of here. It's a real kick ass thing for Catwoman to do. I think it's. I, it just really had a. I felt it felt cinematic. I really enjoyed this issue, last issue and this issue. I really like what saved this storyline for me is 
the, the members of the Bat family, I'm so glad that it's Catwoman and Commissioner Gordon and Mr. Freeze and and Leon and Cheshire. And it's I'm I'm glad it's not Robin or Rad Robin or Barbara Gordon or I I, I like that it's this more eclectic group of Cat Catwoman has her own family, her own. And of course, how can I forget Azrael? My God, who's my my favorite addition here. And uh of course we know that Azrael has hinted that he's gonna be dressing up with his old Batman Azrael suit. So that's something to look forward to. And I just, I, I love it. And I've, th this put a smile on my face. And this is, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled at this issue and the issue that follows, which I've read. I, I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. As I'm talking here, it's just suddenly occurring to me that there's more than one DC comic right now that I'm quite happy with where it's going. And uh, I love the backup too. But uh, before we get there, what did you think of the main story here? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Uh, it's been a little bit up and down. It feels like it, it's taken the long way around to get there at times. But uh, yeah, it, it feels like Rom V's, um, he has, he, we're, we're getting some, some movement. Uh, feels a little bit like a, a bridge issue, but the pieces are being put into place. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy with, uh, with what we've gotten so far. So, uh, yeah, beyond that, the Jason, Sh uh, Sean Alexander art, um, you know, I'm, I'm most familiar with his art when he had that run on spawn. This is a little less clean. It feels like a little more like Kelly Jones inspired. Uh, and as much as, you know, Kelly Jones was a superstar back in the nineties on detective comics. I, I was never a big fan of his over-exaggerated cape and giant bat ears or whatever. Uh, I know a lot of people loved it and it's got a sacrilege for me to say, yeah, he's not anywhere near my, my, you know, top of the list when it comes to, to Batman artists. Um, but it certainly feels like, uh, Sean, Sean, Alex, Jason, Sean Alexander's ch channeling a little bit of that, which is, which is interesting. Um, but I have to imagine that reading this and an omnibus style, um, reading the whole Ron V run, God, while a lot of the artists have taken a very visceral take on the story, which, you know, suits this Gothic feel of a story that, uh, that Rom's been telling the art styles have been very distinctive. So I don't know how well it's going to read, uh, in a trade, but yeah, always great to see Azrael, as you mentioned. Um, and as far as the, the backup goes, uh, again, it, it ties in very closely to, uh, the main story getting uh, to see uh, Cheshire and, and Leanne. Um, I'm not as big of a Cheshire fan as you are. Um, but I do. I find that dynamic interesting. To me, I, it's always felt like Cheshire is so much older than Roy Harper. But I, but I guess not. I mean, I, I, I guess just based on the when you think about it, like Roy came out, you know, he did made his comic book debut, you know, decades before Cheshire did. Um, so if anything, he should feel older. But you know, he he was always a kid when he made his debut, you know, teenager. Where Cheshire felt very sort of world weary if you will and been around so that relationship has always given me a little you know heebie-jeebie like she's been robbing the cradle um but it would be interesting for me again because i just haven't read a lot of it to read something that had all three of them i can't like when was the last time we we've had issues in the recent past with cheshire and leanne they're interacting here and then we've had um some issues specifically most recently in green arrow with Roy and Leanne. And we've had issues with Cheshire and Roy. We haven't had anything with all three of them in the same place at the same time. Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong. No, I think um, that, 
you know, maybe it would be a little too soap opera, yeah. a little too uh, character dynamic or whatever, um, and not not interesting. But can we get all three of them in the same room at some point? Is somebody uh, gonna, like, does DC have a law saying no, can't, can't do that? I, I don't know. It just it seems weird to me. Uh, so anyway, just uh, yeah. something I realized when I was as I was reading this backup. Uh, I guess I should give the the uh, the credits for the backup as well um, before before we move uh, on. Yeah, the credits for the backup. Uh, Dan Waters is the writer and Casper yep. Wingard is the artist. And Steve yep. Wan's the letterer. Letters, yep, yep. And uh, uh, you have anything to add about the uh, backup? Uh, yeah, well, it, it's confirmed, uh, to be very blunt, it's confirmed that it was uh, Ch- Cheshire uh, is the one that abandoned Leon. She, uh, she, I mean, Cheshire is the complete B-I-T-C-H. She let uh, Roy believe that their daughter was dead. She dropped their daughter off at an orphanage in Gotham and kept an eye on her, but didn't think she'd be a good mother because of her life as an assassin. Uh, but it did have an impact on Cheshire. Uh, Leon uh comes to Cheshire for help. Gotham is her home and Cheshire's not inclined to help her, but basically Leon tells her mom, I, I never ask you for anything, but okay, if that's how you feel, basically F off then, stay out of my life. That changes her mother's mind. And so Leon, uh, you know, Cheshire it will, will help Leon and they're, they're going to be part of the team that will uh, help help Catwoman and, and, and Batman and, and, you know, rescue Batman and what have you. And so it's, it's it's interesting, and it's uh, it really shows just how hard ass Cheshire is. Uh, but ultimately, it uh, for a woman that specializes in poisons, as much as she tried to poison a relationship with her daughter, it looks like somehow, despite the type of character and the evil B I T C H that we know Cheshire to be, there is some there is perhaps some hope of some redemption there. It's the love that she has for, for Leon that does shine through, but she's still a killer. killer. She's still a B-I-T-C-H. She still will never get the love of Roy Harper. And uh, I know from Green Green Arrow number six, uh, there's going to be more tensions there that arise. Uh, I got to tell you that relationship that I'm most interested in moving forward, I think is the one to watch uh, that I think is most compelling is the completely dysfunctional relationship between Roy Harper and Cheshire and vis-a-vis uh, as mother and father they have very different and will have very different relationships with their daughter and I think that's very interesting and I like that because it's the type of drama that you should expect when you when you merge a female assassin with a with a with a superhero <laughs> but no no good, good times I, I really enjoyed this issue both the, both the main story and the backup so I was quite happy yeah fair enough all right. Up next, we have Speed Force number one. This is written by Jarrett Williams. Art is by uh, Danielle DiNiculo. Colors by Andrew Dollhouse. Letters by Simon Boland. Uh, I feel like I know that name, Jarrett Williams, uh, before, but I, I don't – I can't think of anything I've read from them off the top of my head. Danielle DiNiculo I mostly know from um, – what is it? S- Secret 7 over at Boom with, uh, with Tom Taylor. Um, I, I – I don't have much to say about this comic. I did not enjoy it. I didn't really no understand. Rant? No rant? Come on. I, no, I'm not. I'm not going to go on. A, I, I easily could go on a rant, but I just, I, I didn't get it. I didn't understand the musical references. I thought the villain was mustache twirling and not very interesting. This new villain that, that we were uh, introduced to. I didn't think it was uh, Dina Kulo's best work in terms of art. It felt very unfinished. Um, I just, this just clearly wasn't for me because it missed the mark so, so 
just by such a wide margin. I, I can't, I, 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 yeah. You know, that whole saying, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say yeah. anything at all. And that's what, I, that's, that's what I'm doing. Uh, this just didn't work for me. So I, I don't think it was, I don't think I'm the right audience. I, I'm, I've aged out of this type of story. Apparently yeah. uh, it, it just didn't, it didn't work for me. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Feel free to rant away. If well, you so choose. well I'm, I'll maintain your, your degree of diplomacy. I, the, the fact is I've, I did actually, I read this twice to try to see, to try to get, I, I wanted to do some justice to what I think was a really badly put together story. And I'm not a fan of the art, but this art is manga style and it's probably the in, it's probably more in than not. It's, I'm not a big fan of manga style art, but a lot of fans are. Manga is very popular, but I'm going to, you know what? I lied. I'm going to rant a little bit. I think that DC is, is trying to do manga a disservice. Do you hate manga so much that have you, I think DC, I think they heard all that, those rumors that manga stories are manga so popular because the stories are written so well and they, and they, and they want to taint the well. They say, well, we're going to do a manga like comic and we're going to make sure the writing is terrible. And boom, this is what the result was. Um, and I say that because there, the, I cannot find a plot. This is literally the two flashes, uh, Wallace West and a this Avery, I don't know why they start running. I, I, I looked in this and there was all of a sudden star labs, all the scientists and star labs across the globe just disappear. Somehow they know this because the, an alarm goes off that they're, that they're here and they're instantly in all these labs. And when they're traveling and running really fast to star labs all around the world, they, they can detect speed force or some type of energy that they link to the bros and the bros are these characters that are, I'm assuming they're twin speedsters. They're called the bros. That's literally their name. And they, they have no evidence that the bros have done anything wrong, but they start chasing them. I think maybe because the energy signature that they detected in the, in the, in the star labs match the bros. And so they're chasing after them and then they're fighting them. Not really sure why I'm not sure why they're, and, and, like you, there was bits of dialogue I didn't understand, and and I, and that's probably because we're just old white guys and we don't maybe get the vernacular, you know, the social, yeah. the, all that jazz. I mean, you know, some references, pop culture references. We don't know uh, that that's all well and good, but I I don't see I don't see the point of this. I, I don't know what the point of this was. I'm not even sure why Wallace West would be hanging out with Avery. I mean, she's from why, is called, why is it called Speed Force? Like, I, I expect an exploration of the Speed Force. I, I, I know. And, and not only that, there is there is some sort of it's not even linked to what's going on in the Flash by Cyspirior, which that's another rant in the making that I promise you uh, with with what's going on over there, because that's something that trying to make sense of what's going on there. It's probably a good thing this doesn't try to link to the Flash. But um, in any event, I, you know, the, it ends up at the end. I just out of the blue, this music meister is the bad guy. And it has such a silly factor to it. I, I really felt like this was reading like a if a DC superhero animated for for preteen scholastic book. I I I I didn't see the point of this. I don't understand what's I I don't really know what's what's going on. And um I, I don't even know why these two characters should be getting along as much as they do. Um, I mean, there's some really nice covers, but 
I just this was a this was just a thrown together story that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not clear to me why these characters, how these characters know each other. I'm not even sure why Superboy is at the beginning of this comic. Uh, they're playing video games, a lot of video game references. I I, I guess I get that, but. Uh, I don't know, like you, as you so diplomatically said, maybe we're just aged out of this, but uh, I still like to think that shouldn't there be a plot here somewhere? And, um, you know, but it is what it is. It's not my pick of the week, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I heard Speed Force, I was excited. Well, it went like I thought we were going to get, okay, we know there's been a lot of changes going on with The Flash, and typically in the past when we've had comics called Speed Force, they're a little more broad, uh, and and kind of you know are an exploration of, of kind of what's going on with the various speedsters. Here, all we get is the the flash of China and 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 Wallace West, um, and then this yeah this music meister as you mentioned. But yeah, I just I I didn't I don't know. I just felt like the story didn't have a point. <laughs> I, uh, man, it, yeah, it was it was not not my not my favorite, not my pick of the week either. Uh, all right, well, let's move on. Wildcast number 12. I know there's a segment of the audience uh, that listens uh, and watches on YouTube that are going to be very happy that this is the end. All's well that ends well. Final issue, Matthew Rosenberg is the writer. Danny Kim and Tom Dernick on art. Elmer Santos on colors. Farron Delgado on letters. Uh, it, this is the end of, uh, of Wildcats. Rocky, what'd you think? Yeah, I had fun with this issue. Uh, and, you know, Matthew Rosenberg... Uh, he's definitely got a sense of humor, uh, as as Grifter says right on the cover. Smile, I told you guys we'd almost live through that. And uh, there's some truth to that. There is, uh, yeah, this has been a sort of a long journey getting here. There's no question about it. Matthew Rosenberg has been sort of hit and miss on his 12-issue sagas. Uh, this one, though, I, I didn't mind the ending. I didn't mind the ending. It, this ends with sort of a reset of the status quo. Uh, we we have the, the seven soldiers. We have the seven soldiers, w which last issue were preoccupied uh, with the Justice League, and so in this issue we've got the we have Wildcat. We've got uh, Voodoo, Grifter, Zealot, Fairchild, Lady Tron, and Backlash taking on Warblade, Void, uh, uh, the Talons, and Jason Halliday. And Jason Halliday is the, is sort of like the the de facto leader of the Court of Owls, and so we got all his Talons along with Warblord and Vaden uh, taking on uh, taking on the Wildcats. We end up with some some pretty great action scenes between Zealot and Warblade, Lady Tron versus Void. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of dialogue, but, you know, I, I actually, I didn't mind the humor. Uh, Jason Halliday, of course, uh, controlling the talons. Jason Hall Halliday uh, trying to orchestrate the destruction of Wildcats, trying to take it over. And ultimately, uh, the resolution involves Grifter basically giving, reporting himself in uh, to the I guess to the police or giving an interview, uh, broadcasting a confession that he's part of a terrorist group uh, uh, called uh, for the Halo Corporation and that he works and he works with Jason Halliday and he basically tattletales on Jason Halliday and he puts all the blame on the Halo Corporation, which at this time is ran by Jason Halliday, who had tried to take over the Wildcats and who controlled the seven soldiers. And so ultimately that's how it resolves the grifter at the end, pushes uh, pushes the zealot off the building. He knows she's going to be okay. He gets her out of harm's way while he expects to maybe 
be killed by the Talons and Jason Halliday, but they ended up not killing him because he gives a confession to the worldwide media, which which forces the Talons to abandon Jason Halliday as their leader. The Court of Owls then abandons Jason Halliday because he's now tainted. He's well known. The Court of Owls is all about secrets, keeping secrets. And the minute Jason Halliday becomes that well known, he's a liability. And so it was actually a pretty smart thing for Grifter to do. You know, it's funny, Grifter as leader, Grifter is often never seen as the leader of the Wildcats. He's kind of the joker and he's a jokester. He's kind of often treated like an idiot. A lot of times you might I think that Lady Tron or or um, or uh, John or Mr. Harlow is is the leader. Yet in so many, the character that time and time again manages to get the Wildcats out of a tough spot, it's it always comes back to Grifter, and that's what I love how this ends. It's Grifter who takes the sh- takes a bullet for the team, and he ends up being t- arrested and taken off to jail. At the end of this, at the end of this. Uh, issue that's that is appropriately called all's well that ends well and it the last scene shows zealot watching grifter being taken away into a police prison wagon and we know that she's going to be rescuing him and breaking him out of prison and it ends with the rest of the wildcats on a random beach somewhere you know once again in secret uh they've managed to escape and lucius fox who we know way back in the in the uh batman urban legends that first six issue series that had grifter in it lucius fox was involved with uh the grifter and sort of paid for some of his uh adventures lucius fox as uh, uses his empire to actually purchase the assets of Halo Corporation. So a lot of the intelligence information that Halo Corporation has is now in the hands of Lucius Fox. And we know Lucius Fox has a soft spot for Grifter. And we know that Zealot will like will break out the Grifter. And we know Wildcats, along with Mr. Marlowe and the rest of the Wildcats, are on a beach somewhere. So the Wildcats are still with his people. We just got a restoration of the status quo. And... Um, this has been a lot of fun. It's had ups and downs. I've been frustrated. I've ranted and then I've raved and then I've ranted. It's been a roller coaster ride, but I'm glad it ends on a, on a high note. So uh, at least for me, it does. What about yourself? Yeah, it's been up and down <laughs> and it's felt like quite the journey to get there. And, and I, I, I'm going to give Matthew Rosenberg credit. I'm going to say that, that that was purposeful, right? I mean, the Wildcats are a property that's been around for a long time. I mean, they had their own Saturday morning cartoon, for God's sake, even though they may not be as well-known as things like Justice League and what have you. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it was it was purposeful the way that it all played out, a little convoluted at times. You know, I talked about this being, rather than being a superhero comic, being a very uh, political book, and it definitely seems like that's that has been the case. Um so yeah, I think ultimately this was this was successful. This this definitely worked for me, um, and I think the, the 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 biggest reason I say that, and where it was most successful, this book makes me want to go back and and read Wildcats. It makes me want to go back and, um, you know, kind of do a complete read of the entire Wildcats history because I don't know it all. I don't. I don't. You know, like I thought Void was a hero. I thought she was on the, the side of the Wildcats and what have you. And here she, she's sort of against them and what have you. So, you know, clearly Matthew Rosenberg knows the, the Wildcats universe much better than I do. And he's taken a little bit more of a unique take on it. And for me, it's worked. It's it's worked for the most part. So uh, kudos to him for, for making it work. And uh, I think ultimately this was, uh, like you said, uh, you know, the best way to put it was this was a lot of fun. This was a lot of fun. So 
Uh, all right, let's move on. Next up, uh, a series that also comes to an end. This one, I'm much more disappointed that it's coming to an end. Uh, it's issue number six, All the Fish of the Vigil from writer Ram V. Uh, Dev Malia Pramanik is the artist. Norm Ratman handles the inks on some of the pages. Rain Barreto on colors. Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, yeah, we've been singing the praises of this book since it first came out. It's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, what were your thoughts on this uh, final issue? I'll, I'll say final issue for now. Because uh, there's some teases that it may uh, continue, but what do you think? Well, I kudos to Ram V. I've this is a new team. This is by far the most interesting new superhero team to grace comic books in quite a while. I think at least from the big two, mind you. I, I should caveat that by saying I'm not a. I, I don't really read Marvel anymore, so maybe that's an unfair thing for me to say. But I, I really like this. This feels like th this feels this feels fresh and it feels new. It feels like I'm just getting to know these characters for the first time, and I want to keep getting to know them. Uh, this uh, in this issue, this this is this is the end of the first arc. I guess, I, I mean, this series is, is likely going to continue at some point. This is the end of the, I guess, maybe the end of this series at this point. But uh, one of the characters, Castle, who's this sort of young, short psychopath, uh, Castle is narrating this. And basically, uh, we this doctor, Dr. Sankaran, who created the vigil, he created the entire team uh, when... Basically, while he was in another alternate universe that gave gave substance and uh, and brought to life whatever he could imagine, and the the, the bad guy in the in in the issue the bad guy is this uh, is this uh, Hep, this uh, this Mister Hep, and he's he's created his own group of of nefarious criminals, and they, they come to a head and. You know, you, you think this has been we've been led to believe that that Hep has put together a team that's going to wipe out the vigil. And what what happens here, what plays out so well here is how Castle, you know, Castle at the very beginning, he, he's essentially he's narrating it and he's he's literally predicting what's going to happen. He's so intelligent. Uh, he's he literally predicts what will happen and he's playing chess and he's appropriately playing chess and he's moving pieces on the board and he's sort of speculating what's going to happen uh, based upon his observations over the last six issues based upon this he makes the observations of the characters that the same observations that astute readers could make from issue one castle makes in this issue and he draws inferences from information that we already know to predict the behavior of the characters that leads to a successful uh, result by the end of the issue. I thought it was very well done and I felt rewarded as a reader because it's nice to know that, you know, well, I guess I have a lot. I have a, I have something in common with Castle, the psychopath. I, is, I put together some of the things as well. Not like he did, of course. I'm not that smart, but it was, it was, it was really enjoyable reading it because he's such a crazy bastard. In fact, even that Mr. Hep, the bad guy there, talks with Castle at one point and basically says, you know, uh, we, we have to remember that Dr. Sankaran, uh, when he spoke of Castle, he said that the reason why Castle's on our team is that so he's not on any other team. Uh, that's why, because we need him on our team. And you really see why in this issue. The way that things play out strategically 
as as they're being attacked it just works out so well and as castle says to mr hep what is the purpose of a learning instrument i watch i learn i see patterns and i have no ego i only have purpose and i will not i may not be able to replace you but given time i will destroy you that's what i mean if you got a guy like castle saying that to you you know you're pretty much screwed and i think it it just i there were those types of character moments that it, it was it was dialogue moments that, like that that have the same impact of a great two page visual spread, and that's that's the power of good writing versus we talked a lot about great art in the in the, uh, this week. While sometimes there's great dialogue that has the same visceral impact as great art, and uh, in this case uh, the artist is uh, Devmala. Devmalia Pramanek, and uh, I don't I don't mind the art honestly. Uh, it, I think the art is, could the art be better? Probably, but the, the art works. It's fine. I do think it, it, uh, uh, I do think it may, it, uh, some of the, I, I, I could nitpick a bit. It's, I'm stylistically, it maybe isn't my first choice as an artist, but it absolutely works mainly to the power of the writing, in my opinion. And, there's uh, I, I, I don't want to ruin all these moments here because a lot of the, the moments to explain what happens, a lot of it is so uh, subtle and it's you pick up on it with both the dialogue and the pictures. You, you got to you got to read them both together because a lot of it, it gets a little scientific and a lot of and, and a lot of introspection and a lot of reflecting back and the arrogance of castle the arrogance of mr wall the psychopath who who ends up killing dynamo and and uh and how they you know the mind games that they play with each other and the power that um uh, pardon me, I, that power that Dodge has, I'm, I'm, I apologize if I confuse Castle with Dodge. Castle was the psychopath. Dodge is this person. She could vibrate at certain speeds. And she, her power is seen to be, she's so much more powerful than we realize. She can actually vibrate and move them into the bleed itself. This is the second reference to the bleed. The bleed is that space in between the in the, in between the various Earths and the multiverse. She's got the power to literally cause the vigil as a team to escape into the bleed, which is what they do at the end of it. Uh, I, I just thought this was really spectacular. And I'm really curious to see, you know, it says the vigil will return. And I think that they're, they're the ultimate wild card in, uh, and when I, when I think of this vigil, this vigil, and I think of what we're getting in Outsiders, even though they're very different teams with very different objectives, it's, I kind I like, I sort of like this sort of, this is a different type of team that deals with different types of, they're a different eclectic team. They're going to have different priorities and they think differently than other teams do. And hopefully the new outsiders will be the same thing if it's a reflection of planetary. And again, you know, again, more, the more I'm talking about it, there's a lot of reasons for me to look forward to what's going to be in store in the dawn of the DCU here moving forward. But uh, I, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed this ending and I, I hope to see more of the vigil. What about yourself? Yeah, I'll start with the art. I agree with you. Um, like all along, it's been uh, artists from India. Uh, and I think that was intentional by Ram, uh, Ram V. I think most of the time the creative team has been uh, creators from that part of the world. They understand it. You know, Ram V's talked about uh, when, we, when we had him on the show, he talked about the, the importance of that and um, kind of the, 
the interesting nature of, of India, you know, some of the most abject poverty in the world, but yet some of the most cutting edge technology of, of the world. So, you know, creative teams from that part of the world are going to inherently understand that they're going to, you know, bring the, their A game. They're going to have passion for these characters. So, yeah, I, I would have preferred had we had the same artists all along um, throughout, but, you know, just reality of comics these days that, that we haven't. But good storytelling. Uh, I just think, yeah, the line work is not um, – it's not always as clean as I, I would prefer, but, you know, that that's personal preference or what have you. Uh, I agree with you on the subtlety of the storytelling. At times it's um, – you know, I think you, you use the word um, introspective. Um, so uh, I think that that is definitely the case. Um, we go back to talking about Warren Ellis, planetary authority – and, you know, I mentioned how influential that is. Uh, yes, we had the Outsiders this week. Yes, it, a lot of the same things. Here they end up with the ship. Get, they get to the bleed in a different way than we're going to get to there. In the out, But it's like, really? We have two of these going on at the same time? Did they, were these pitched at the same time? Uh, are they going to run into each other in the bleed? Nah, probably not. Completely separate, completely different. Um, got there in different ways. But, yeah, very much – clearly influenced by Warren Ellis and by, uh, by planetary, by the authority. So uh, I find that to be really interesting. Um, you know, we've only had one issue of the outsider, so it might not be fair to, you know, to make a comparison at this point, but, uh, I'm going to anyway, uh, the vigils is feels more original, um, than the outsiders to this point. Uh, I would be more interested in reading more of the vigil than I would be, um, in reading the, uh, the outsiders, but you know, that might change as we get more, uh, more issues. The outsiders will have to wait and see. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've absolutely loved the series. Like I said, I'm disappointed it's coming to an end. I feel like we've just gotten to know these characters and that's really the strength of this. You know, you talk about being inspired by authority or being inspired by planetary, or what have you, but the strength of this, this story is in the characters and the unique characters and the unique characterization of those characters that Ron V has brought to the story more so than anything They've all had their chance to shine, whether it be Dodge or uh, or Santa or Castle. Um, it's just the series has had its twists and turns, and that was true right here at the end, where Castle was once again one step ahead of everybody in the story. And uh, yeah, just a really really great book. And I was I was hoping uh, that at New York Comic Con they were going to announce that the series was had been extended. We saw that happen with Romby's swamp thing. I don't know. Maybe the sales numbers don't dictate it. Maybe it's the publishing schedule that they just don't have room for right now, but this can't come back soon enough in my mind. Uh, or maybe it's just that they want to give the outsiders a chance to, uh, you know, to get a few issues out there under its belt because they do have uh, kind of similar concepts. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, all right. On to the last book we're going to talk about in detail today. It's Batman and Robin number three from writer Joshua Williamson. Simone DeMeo on art. He handles the colors as well. Steve Wands on letters. Throughout this book, it's been digitally painted with Simone DeMeo's style of art. Reds and blues and pinks and purples. I, I, I It doesn't work for me artistically. It, it feels too same. Like it just everything, every page feels the same. And because it's almost monochromatic or diachromatic at times, I find myself kind of struggling in, in the art to see what's going on. And I think that's affecting my enjoyment 
of the story itself um, because I haven't been enjoying this story. Um, you know, we talked before about how it felt so out of place when compared to what's been going on in the pages of um, of Gotham War. Now, got and it didn't make allowances, and I'm sure Williamson was purposeful in that referencing Gotham War to try to make it fit in and make sense. It didn't, uh, as much as he put in an effort. It was almost like he shouldn't have bothered to put in the effort because then it made it even more obvious how it didn't fit in personality wise and timing wise and what have you. But Gotham War is over now, so we can kind of put that in the past and just focus on this. But what I'm finding now is that you know, set aside the, the struggle I have with the art, which is totally on me. I get that. Um, it just feels like a generic Batman story. Um, and it's Damien being Damien and it's Bruce Wayne and him, Batman and Robin going after white cat and somebody named Shush. And I'm not sure why I'm supposed to care at this point. Although we do at the end, get a hint of maybe a new status quo for man bat. That might be interesting, I guess, but Man Bat's not a character I, I care enough about that I would finish reading this on my own if it weren't for the fact that, you know, we read all of DC because we do these spotlights. But if it wasn't for that, I, I would be done with the series. Like it just, it's not offering me anything. It just feels very sort of paint by the numbers, generic. Uh, and, and again, I guess if, you know, you're a big fan of Simone DeMeo's art, you know, maybe that's a reason to show up. I, I'm clearly not a fan of his art. Um, not that it's not good, not that he's not talented and the storytelling and his choice of angles and insets and all that, it, it works very well. I just, I can't get past the color. I think it's the color more than anything that just it, it makes it feel so monotonous to me that I, I just don't enjoy it. So yeah, this is not for me. Um, maybe you're enjoying it more. I, I hope so. Uh, what, what were your thoughts on it? I think maybe I'm enjoying it a little bit more. I, uh, I, I will say that though that uh, Simon DeMeo is an artist that he has an acquired taste for me. I uh, it's he's particular. I, I it's the oddest thing because I it's hard for me to articulate what's wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with his art. It's actually beautiful. He's actually he's very smooth with his lines. He uh, there there's something that that's captivating about the art. I think it's just I guess maybe I'm just not used to it. It's a little bit different, but. It's it's not bad, and and I have to say it doesn't it 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 doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the story, and it it uh, I do think it I'm actually wondering if maybe if the color work was a little different, it's because the I think like he draws the characters very well. It's maybe just the the coloring that could be maybe a little bit more because all the colors always seem to sort of every page seem to be seems to be a, the same an offshoot of the same color, like my, my, whether it's, you know, one page will be offshoots of the color purple and then one page will be offshoots of the color red um, or multiple versions of the color red or multiple. And it's just, it just, it's, it's an odd, it's, it can be an odd color palette at times. It doesn't always sync up with what's happening in the scene. Again, that's a real nitpick. The fact is, uh, I think the character of Shush, you know, from Hush uh, is kind of silly, but Shush is clearly working. Shush and White Rabbit are working for somebody. We don't know who they're working for. Uh, are they working for the dark man bat who shows up at the end with, uh, you know, holding Robin by the neck? I don't know. Uh, it's, 
I don't really know where the story is going. I thought there was a really odd moment where Shush and White Rabbit are taking off. Batman wants to chase them. And he says, okay, well, I'm going to chase Shush and White Rabbit, Robin. You go back to school. Well, Batman's been poisoned. He needs to get to Shush and, and, the, and the, the, the White Rabbit in order to find the cure because Shush has the cure because Batman was filled with some sort of odd bat toxin or something uh, in, in the first issue. And he still needs the cure for that. And he's so I like the first issue where we got some we got more of Bruce Wayne as a family man trying to be a father to to Damien and Damien. Maybe I was actually looking forward to some maybe a couple of scenes with Damien at school or adjusting to fit in at school. I thought maybe that's where Williamson is going. But clearly he, he's scripting Damien here. Damien wants to avoid school like the plague. And and then, of course, you can't blame Damien for saying, I'm not going to go to school, Dad. You've been poisoned. We just got out of a battle in a prison with White Rabbit and and Shush, and we didn't even know Hush had a daughter. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to. That was the wrong time to tell me to go back to school. I mean, even I would agree with that. I mean, anyways, uh, but that's I say that a little bit tongue in cheek because I, I laughed at it a bit. I enjoyed reading it. Uh, but I understand your sensibility when you say that it's not really standing out. And. And I say that maybe it's an underhanded compliment because I've enjoyed a lot of comic books this week. I had a fun, it was, you know, the more I, I reviewed these comics with you, I realized this was a, a, one of the better than average weeks for DC. And this one, this was good, This, but this doesn't come close to the top because there were just uh, so many, there was that many more comics that I enjoyed that much more. So, but overall, not bad. Uh, yeah, all right. So that does it for the uh, single issues that we're going to review. There was also, uh, I think, one other episode, uh, a Looney Tunes uh, issue that was out this week as well. Yeah, Looney Tunes 275. And then as far as collected editions, we have Superman, the War World Saga trade paperback, which collects the – it's like an omnibus of uh, – of the War World Saga from Philip Kennedy Johnson. So you've got Action Comics 1030 to 1046, Action Comics 2021 annual, Action Comics 2022 annual, Batman Superman Authority Special 1, Future State Superman House of L1, Future State Superman Worlds at War 1 and 2, and Superman War World Apocalypse 1. So it's a huge amount of stories, 728 pages uh, to get your Superman fix and uh, definitely uh, a fantastic story. Uh, we've also got Adventures of Superman John Kent hardcover, which collects uh, issues one through six of Adventures of Superman John Kent. Uh, a little bit of a bait and switch. He doesn't actually take on Ultraman. It's more about uh, John Kent against um, the uh, Superman from the uh, Injustice video game. Uh, and then finally, Batman the Hush Saga Omnibus, uh, which is sort of e evergreen. Uh, that Hush Saga, Jeff Loeb, uh, Jim Lee collects Batman's uh, 608 through 619 and 685, Batman Gotham Knights 50 through 55, 60 through 71, and 73 through 70, Detective Comics 846 through 850 and 852, uh, The Hush Story from Wizard Magazine Zero, Hush Tales from Batman Streets of Gotham 1 through 4, 14 and 16 through 21, and finally, material from Batman Hush 20th Anniversary Edition. So if you're a big fan of Hush, uh, you're going to want to look out for that. It's 1,272 pages, so uh, it's absolutely huge, and uh, it's 150 bucks. So it's not cheap, but you're getting a ton of comic for your uh, for your dollar there. So, uh, moment of truth, Rocky. A lot of comics out this week. Uh, we know it's not Speed Force. 
Uh, <laughs> no. What, what is your book of the week? Oh, man. Um, I'm going to go with... Um, I have to go with Detective Comics. I It was wow. between that and the vigil, but I got to... I enjoyed Danger Street too, and Wildcats I enjoyed too. Damn. Uh, and Superman Lost, I like that too. Damn, this was a real tough... This is a tough yeah, one. Like, Sandman is an excellent I, thing. Yeah. I got like six... Yeah. They're battling for first place, man. It's, I, ah, oh, man. Ah, uh, wow. I mean, this is like choosing between an apple and an orange and I, I love fruit. I mean, but I'll, you know what? I'll, I'll go with Detective Comics because I, because both the, the main story and the backup were good. And uh, yeah, so I'm going to go with uh, Detective Comics. See if I can find it here. Yeah, I'll go with Detective Comics. What about yourself? Yeah, surprisingly enough, as of, uh, I echo your sentiment as we're going through, I realize this was a better week than maybe I first gave it credit for. Uh, Detective wasn't necessarily a standout for me. It continues to be pretty solid. Um, but yeah, I mean, you mentioned Superman Lost, Danger Street, absolutely fantastic. Sandman, really, really great. But, you know, I'm going to, I think I've picked the vigil every single week that it's come out. <laughs> I think so you have. Why, why mess with a good thing? I'm going to go with the vigil once again, um, just based on the strength of just how absolutely amazing the story has been throughout. So, uh, yeah, it's just been a real fantastic story. And and both by Ram V, you know, detective comics and vigil, both by Ram V. So, yeah. Uh, hope DC (laughs) knows, knows what it has there. Uh, and Ram V has, has done plenty of other comics prior to his DC work. Uh, a lot of stuff over at, at Vault, and now he's got stuff going on at Boom and Dark Horse and what have you. Uh, so there's plenty of uh, other work out there uh, if you're a fan of his and want to check out some of his other titles. So, yeah, so that does it. Uh, again, apologies for this one being a little late. Uh, totally on me. This time of year, things get crazy with the holidays, you know, working for a restaurant group. Obviously, we're pretty busy during this time of year. So uh, apologies for that, everybody. Uh, hopefully next week we'll, again, because we can read ahead now. Uh, hopefully we can record early and, and get it out on time for you. So uh, appreciate you all joining. Any last thoughts, Rocky? I just thought this was a, this was a good week. I was uh, I enjoyed reading the comic books this week with the possible exception of one. And, uh, I'm you know, I think... Dare I say, I think we're going to end the, the year with DC on a higher note. Uh, and I think people, I would just encourage people that we'll, I think we'll hopefully get some Christmas cheer storytelling wise by DC before it, before the new year. Yeah. So that's going to do it, everybody. Don't forget to head over to YouTube. If you're listening to audio only, uh, subscribe to Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Uh, is where you can go to see all our past DC spotlights and other content Rocky puts out. Conversely, if you're checking us out there, I uh, really appreciate you heading over to wherever you get your podcast from. Do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. We're going to have the 12 days of the Comic Source coming up again in December, counting down to Christmas, uh, covering uh, a particular subject that's near and dear to my heart. So I uh, hope you all um, can give us a listen and join us for the holiday season. And we appreciate your support as always. And we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. 
Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.